0: Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Hipstorians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co historian Neil Feddersen-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events. ...that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Good evening, Neil. Welcome back from uh, Hamburg. And hello to all our Hipstorian listeners. you
1: Jawohl! Vol- back from freezing cold Hamburg. Very interesting trip. It'll definitely feature on the Hipstorians in an upcoming episode having spent some time in a Russian submarine. So that's something to look forward nice,
0: to. Nice. Indeed. Well, this evening, um, yeah. we will be uh, speaking with Gwen Strauss, okay. uh, whose family member, and we'll get into that, was uh, very much a part of a group of women's resistors in France in the Second World War. So wow. it's this heart and time in history Neil that obviously is, is your thing yeah you love it indeed and uh, it's an amazing story it's so eloquently written by Gwen and I'm really excited now to have a chat and get into a little bit more about this, about this book good evening Gwen how are you
1: hi Gwen how are you this evening oh,
2: wonderful thank you for having me on your show
1: you're more than welcome glad to have you on board we'll be looking forward to this one for a while where are you joining us from this evening then
2: I'm in the south of France where I live, in Provence, and I live here because I run an artist residency program
1: down here. Oh ah, ah, very okay. nice. Very right. Nice. Just very we excellent. were chatting away just be, just before you came on and Derek, you were telling me that Gwen, <laughs> very interesting person, she lives in the south of France, has an American accent. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <And> That's <laughs> right.
2: I am American. <laughs>
1: You're American. <laughs> yes. I, so, I'm, yeah.
2: And I'm also German. I have German, double nationality And you're German
1: as well. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. where do we begin then, Derek, with this interesting lady? Well,
0: well, well, I think that a part of that, I suppose, the origin story really would be Germany, wouldn't it? And then uh, the, the move to France. So and, and you can introduce it. It's your great aunt, isn't it? That right. So, so
2: a, the, the reason I'm, I'm actually German is because my grandfather was a German Jew who escaped right before the war and ni- actually quite early on in 1933 he, he was a pilot and they wouldn't let him fly anymore so he left okay. and he married a french woman um and that and that my great-aunt is is a the sister-in-law of that french woman so tante hélène was french but my so part of my family is German, but a large part of my family is French as well.
0: And how did you come across this story? A part of what's really you know interesting about it is is the mystery. Like it was unsaid for for quite some time. Um,
2: That's right. So
0: it was, it was almost by accident, wasn't that You came across.
2: Yeah, it was by accident, or um, I was lucky. My grandmother, who I was really close to, invited me to lunch, and Hélène was there at lunch. And during that lunch, Hélène, who was eighty three at the time, so. She started to tell the story that happened 60 years earlier when she had been in the resistance and been arrested by the Gestapo and then how she had escaped from Germany, from, from this German slave labor camp, a Commando uh, Leipzig with a group of other women. And it was so extraordinary. I'd never heard the story. I think that most of the people in my family didn't know the story because she never spoke of it. So I asked if I could come back and record it at her home and she said I could, and that's what I did.
0: Wow. Okay, okay. That,
2: was its that was way back in two thousand and two.
0: That's right. I, I I had I had seen that. So it took you quite a while to come um, and get down to the actual writing of it. And you then relied on. on and unfortunately, when with your your aunt, she passed away. When when was that?
2: Yeah. So she passed away before I really got to working on the book. And I, now, right now, I'm having a blank. But I, she passed away in in um, about ten years after I spoke with her when she okay. was ninety three. So. In 2012, uh, but in between, I came across. To, so I sat down with her in 2002, recorded the story. We made a transcript. She corrected it, and I and she gave it to a university archive. And we kind of left it at that. I thought that we wouldn't, you know. And my I had children, young children, and I was busy. And though I was a writer, and I kind of thought maybe I would make a novel. You know, I, it was in my head. And then a few years later in 2004, I came across another book in a French bookstore um, that was written by this woman named Suzanne Modé Zaza. And it was called Nine Young sure. Girls Who Don't Want to Die. And it seemed very close to the story that my Tante Hélène had told me. So I gave it, I asked Hélène, is this, is this you? Because in the book, someone named Christine seemed to be someone who would be my Hélène. And she confirmed that indeed that was her. And so that was the second part of, you know, little by little, I was able to find different versions of the story. Only, well, three different versions of the story. And then, you know, fast forward, um, uh, I, it was really in 2016 that I started to really want to write about it, like s- seriously research it, you know, and figure out what had happened.
0: And how hard was it then to put the, uh, the missing pieces? You, you mentioned three there, so presumably six other characters trying to find their families trying to find their stories how hard is that
2: well if and actually at first it was quite hard because I didn't even know their names all that there was in in Suzanne in Zaza's book was their nom de guerre their first names and they were sometimes didn't bear any resemblance to their real names and um and I what you know so I had to figure out who they were first of all what was their first name what was their family name I had these Nazi lists of the women who had been at the camp I could, you know it was, it was little it was all kinds it was actually incredibly fun. It was like detective work and mm-hmm. I'm not a proper historian so it was all new to me like learning how to go to archives and learning how to write away for documents and every little piece I would just I have a little teeny writing shed in my garden and every time I would get like a piece of the puzzle, I would just you know scream with joy. my dog would look at me startled. <laughs> it was super fun. I, I actually, you know, there's a part of me that if I didn't have an agent and an editor who were were kind of pushing me to write the manuscript, Mm. I would still be researching it because there's just so much to learn and know. So eventually I was able to find some, pretty much all of the women and then, well, they had all passed away by the time I started writing it, unfortunately, sadly. Um, Mm. It's a big regret I have that I hadn't, that I didn't start it sooner when some of them were alive.
1: Indeed, and that, that's very understandable. But you're doing them justice now by telling their stories in in this book. Um, <laughs> you know, just incredible. Like just some of the the details of the stories. Like who escapes from the Gestapo? This is on just that yeah. one tiny element that you just kind of mentioned there. Escaping from first of all, getting caught by the Gestapo.
2: Yeah. It's, it's not- well, the thing was that they were all incredibly young. I learned that that was sort of astonishing to me. They were all in their twenties. Some of them were as young as twenty-one when they were arrested by the Gestapo. For example, Nicole was arrested the day after she turned twenty-one, and by that time, she was ahead, the, the head of all of the agents liaison of the Paris region. That means she was a, she was the person in charge of making sure all the different agents who connected the different networks were, were you know were where they were, what they were doing, who they were, were they safe? You know she. And and she, she of course, got stopped by the Gestapo in August of 1944, just as the Allies were bombing on the outskirts of the city. And she was sent to Rue de la Pompe, which is like this infamous torture site, extra legal Gestapo site. And sadly, the last train out of Paris, she was on that, deported to Germany, just as the Allies were liberating the city. So, but they were so young, you know, they were so young. Mm -hmm. They were all in the resistance. They were all doing amazing things in the resistance. Um, And then, you know, sadly they were uh, sent to Ravensbrück first, which is the large, the only camp built only for women. It's the second largest concentration camp after Auschwitzburg now. And then from Ravensbrück, if you were young and strong, you were shipped off to, to labor in one of these commandos. And they were sent to Hasag, Leipzig, where they, worked on weapons, mm-hmm. and very proudly. Yeah. In fact, my my Tante Hélène, when I recorded with her, the thing she was the most proud of and the thing she spent the most time talking about was how she sabotaged the <laughs> the fabrication of these Panzerfaust shells, you know, these rocket-held.
0: Yeah, that was good. The Allies definitely needed a bit of help. Those, they were lethal, uh, they were tank, tank destroyers, uh, for sure, yes. you
1: know, very, very simple to use. The Allies did notice, right, near, near the end of the war, how defective some of the German equipment was and they, they put it back together to people like
2: that's you know, right. I mean the, who, the factory, who, the factory where she was because she was so successful, she was an engineer, she spoke five languages, she was able to talk to all the different prisoner groups and the the guards and some of the foremen in the factory were no longer pro-Nazi or maybe never had really been, okay. you know, the and so they were helping her and they put her in charge of the thermostats. So the she was able to like uh make the heating of, and the forging of these shells, you know, imperfect. So they would often blow up in the face of the soldiers using them. So, and this was such a problem that the, the Germans were constantly inspecting the factory, trying to figure out what was going on. But the, the brilliant thing about these young women was that they just, the Germans could not imagine that they were capable of such, mm. such sophisticated sabotage. Like they just, they never suspected sabotage. They thought something was wrong with the, the machines or the material or the you know but not mm. it couldn't be the women that did that
1: so they did they didn't race the women at all they didn't kind of see them as a threat. they couldn't kind of overlook them and to their cost then obviously yeah.
2: in fact that was kind of their strength their secret power these women in the resistance and i think that's why so many were in the resistance and were able to be to do things is that they could they had a kind of freedom of movement slightly um and they had you know they were completely underestimated so they use that often to their advantage and they use that. That was one of their main strategies during their escape because when they escaped, they still had, they were in the middle of Germany and they had, you know, to cross the front lines of the war and they had to cross, meet other Germans and soldiers retreating, you know, they had to figure out how to, to slip through. And, and they often use the, the, sort of like, well, we're just dumb girls. We have no idea what we're doing, you know, and we able to trick people that way.
0: Yeah, very smart. Very smart indeed. It's, it's astonishing that Ravensboro. I mean, like it's not it's not a concentration camp that that um springs to mind. Obviously, outfit, yes, and myself and Neil are both visitors and it's it's a it's a very moving eerie, eerie place. Mm-hmm. Um but uh you just see you didn't and I see again part of this story and what you're highlighting here with, with the story of The Nine is that it's probably because it was a labor camp for women. That's probably <laughs> why you know um, Absolutely. and of course then the stories were buried as well because they were women you yeah. know so it's very sad
2: um no ravensbrook is really interesting to me because it's this huge camp it's an important camp it's one of the first ones built i mean there's dachau and you know ravensbrook is quite soon after that of course at the beginning it was kind of a reform it was a, a relatively nice place and it but over time you know it becomes an incredibly deadly place obviously yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were gas chambers there, and there was executions there, et cetera, um, at the, by the end of the war. But part of the reason why it's so forgotten, or at least has been up until recently, is that it fell behind the Iron Curtain. And the Soviets really raised it to the ground. Um, and they wanted to build a shopping mall you know, on it. There was this whole idea. And the second reason I think that's quite important is that women, it was shameful to have come to have been there. So many of the women who were there didn't tell anyone. you know marriages were called off, like you didn't want to be known to have been there. You were sort of damaged goods to have gone through there. So there was kind of silence. There were these survivor groups that were quite tenacious and thankfully for them, the memorial exists and has continued. And, you know, now we have a lot of testimony. The other thing is that the Nazis, um, and that was what I want to say, the third reason is they were, they had a sense that the German public would be, T- totally shocked and appalled at the treatment of women on German soil, especially because there were also German women there. And so they made a huge effort to, to erase and destroy the records, the Ravensbrück records. And even with the gassing program that was tried out at Ravensbrück, they did not write about it. It was not listed on the list. We only know that they were doing them there because the doctors doing the gassings wrote copious letters to their wives which exist and have proven that they were. In fact, it was part of the T4 program at the very beginning, you know, but there was a a real effort to keep all of that information unknown.
1: So they Absolutely. almost succeeded then. They almost succeeded in burying Absolutely. all these stories and, and wiping it out. And excuse my ignorance, Derek mentioned there, we both been to Auschwitz and very moving uh, experience, one that stays with you, but there's a lot to see there. You know, a lot a lot of the camp was, was saved. Excuse, excuse my ignorance, have you been to Ravensbrück and, and what is the status of that camp now? Yes,
2: I have been there and I do recommend it. It's only two hours north of Berlin mm. by train. It's quite nearby, so it's an easy camp to see. Uh, you know, it's not Auschwitz is difficult to get to, yeah, as you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Um, Ravensbruck is, is is has a memorial there. There's a really excellent uh, museum there in the old um, officers' uh, office buildings. The actual bunkers are all have all been torn down. They were torn down by the Soviets. What also exists, which is kind of eerie and interesting to see are these little Swiss chalets because Ravensburg is on this lake, beautiful lake, like, you know, the, the Germans love to build their concentration camps in these sort of like wooded bucolic areas, you know? Um, and they, um, so it's on Lake Furstenberg. On the other side, there's a town, Furstenberg, and then there's the Ravensburg opposite. And it's and the, the Swiss chalets were the, the SS housing, which are, is really, you can go into the SS housing, you can see how they lived. Of course, they had endless, gardeners and house staff a lot of the Jehovah's Witness prisoners they kept us as, as maids and you know so it was a really great life if you were a guard in Ravensbrook.
1: Hmm. And and did, did Helene dis- discuss this in, in in detail did you specifically the, the treatment that was meted out in Ravensbrook?
2: I did I did um uh it's always tricky right when you write about this stuff because you don't want to um You don't want to be purient and just go overboard Mm. with the, you know, the terrible things that happened there. Mm. And really for me, Reverend's book is kind of the the center or the capital of crimes against women in war, because what the things that were done to women, to pregnant women, to, it's just awful. And so I tried to balance in my writing how much I told, wrote about it, how much I just let the reader imagine. Mm. Um, And, you know, there were definitely things that I didn't include because I didn't, I wish I didn't know them myself. Yeah. You know, I just there's a certain kind of, but at the same time, so I wanted I, I don't know how to put this. There's also incredible. The women survived longer than than men, and I in these camps they had a longer life expectancy, and I think the reason is that they were much more solidaire. They were much more. They helped each other out a lot, and so there's a lot of really great stories as well of just incredible kindness, acts of bravery, acts of solidarity that I discovered in Raven's book and in Leipzig. And I wanted those stories to be understood and heard as well as the mm. sort of murderous darkness. I, I feel like it's easy enough for us to understand how horrific it was, or it's, I mean, it's not easy, but we, mm. we have learned how horrific it was. I also want to affirm the kind of um, humanity that also existed in those places.
1: No, I, I, I see exactly what you've done there. You know, it's, 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 it's actually a story about the true, you know, heroism of the human spirit because yeah. we that, know uh, like, the, the, what happened in the camps has been well documented mm-hmm. elsewhere so you weren't really focusing on that you were just more focused about the, like I said mm-hmm. the strength of, of, of the human spirit and as a person before she passed away, is that what she I know she didn't discuss it much until you start talking to her but did she embody that spirit? Did she come into a room and light it up with that kind of
2: <laughs> what well, imagine I- that
1: kind of person to be?
2: I, you know, Hélène is, was quite somebody, I mean, she, she like I said, she was brilliant, she spoke all these languages, she was an engineer, mathematician, incredibly elegant, um, you know, she commanded respect, she was a leader, she was a natural leader, and she ended up, I, from what I can tell from all the accounts, she was the leader of the group. Um, she was sort of the one they listened to, though it was it was more that they all came together and they would talk and decide what to do next. and. But there's a few that said, once Ellen spoke, that was kind of what we would do. But she would always wait and speak last. Mm. Um, I think uh, she had a kind of um, reserve. You know, she wasn't at all gregarious or um, outgoing. I think there was some of the others in the group were more kind of funny or uh, lively. Ellen was much more of a um, just a very dignified person. Um, she, she didn't really talk too much to me about what she suffered in, in mm-hmm. though she did say when she was talking about her, when she was tortured in, in the prisons before she was deported, she said once, she said to me that Angers was the capital of pain for her, or yeah. the, her memory of Angers was her, was, her, was her pure memory of pain, something like that. Wow. And and she described a little bit of about the torture, but not didn't go into detail. She wanted really to talk always about her agency. So it was always like when they sabotaged the weapons, or how they escaped, or when they were doing the you know instead of when they were victims.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it's an important part of being human. Like we, we do tend to to put painful it's you not know, physically painful particularly experiences behind us the brain just shuts it off it doesn't yeah. it doesn't want to remember And it's you know it's it's uh obviously it's a, a saving race on. of the yeah ab- mm. absolutely um and and two like there was only okay so there's only two of the nine that were actually jewish right but the, Th- the that's right germans didn't know they were jewish they had right. obviously yeah okay um, so my, and then, my i talked len and nicole
2: were the two jews in the group and they were arrested as political prisoners and i don't i mean i think the others in the group knew they were jewish but i don't think that was an issue in fact the group was really a mix there was catholic there were Protestant, there were jews there was upper class lower class there were you know communist gaullist. There were all different political persuasions that to me too is extraordinary how well they got they, they were so they worked together as a team despite all those kind of differences
0: and, and there's a bit like i mean one of the the, the horrors of war and it's, it's you know that's been documented as well certainly well I suppose what surprised me in the, in the book was there's was a, a lot of rape unfortunately as part of the second world war um and you know when you say the word rape in the second world War to me I start thinking of the Soviets coming from the east and blasting you know meeting out revenge wherever they could but the surprising thing was it was uh, it wasn't it wasn't just uh, the Soviets right it was the Allied forces and wow. uh, some of some of the worst cases were 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 uh, right. Allied.
2: American soldiers, I I wrote about it a little bit, Uh, the American soldiers were really, um, the France was really sexualized in the kind of propaganda to get people to enlist in the war. And there was this kind of like, you know, wink and a smile, like, you know, go over there. The French girls are all, you know, they're just for the taking kind of thing. So women in France really experienced that pretty intensely. Mm, But um, what's interesting about the the Red Army and the stories of the rapes of the Red Army, I mean, this is just a little aside. I don't know if I should. The, the book is being published in China now, and 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 they, the censors wanted me to take that out of the book, that part of the, which which is interesting.
1: Which it which is, part yeah. did they want to take out? Sorry.
2: The, the part about the Red Army and raping. Did they? Which really? is kind of really well known, but yeah, yeah. Chinese just they said it would never pass the censors if it was in there.
1: Right.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, that's yeah. that's puzzling. Communist countries, and that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's. I that's, mean, it's just interesting. Right. I
2: was kind of surprised, but yeah, it's
0: interesting. I would never thought of that, that before. To be honest with you, it just never occurred to me. I suppose when you do go back and look at Second World War propaganda, there's no house barred. And you know, things are very, you know, direct and
2: yeah. uh,
0: overt. There's nothing subtle, nothing subtle about right. it, right?
2: You know, and I think that was part of the the trick for these women as well, because they were all like, like I said, they were all young. They were quite beautiful. And they had to use that kind of pretty charm to get their way sometimes, you know? So they were always somewhat um, using the sex, the sort of sensuality, sexuality, as a as a ticket to things, a way through, a way behind. But at the same time, they hadn't, you know, it was dangerous because at some point that could go again, it could go very bad wrong, you know? So it was a fine line and it was a difficult thing to, to negotiate. It's, and it's also kind of a difficult thing to write about, honestly, because there were situations where you know Nicole talks about this incident where she was picked up early on in the resistance by a German police officer, and he held her for a night and tried to rape her many times, she says, and she had to use all of her charms to get out of it. She doesn't explain exactly how, you know, you mm. have to kind of imagine what she did. And it's different difficult for in a way the sort of liberated woman of our time to understand. The, get, the cat and mouse game that they had to play and, mm-hmm. and had to be you know skilled at if that makes
1: sense yeah. yeah and after the war then you know i was just reading a bit better that they they had different experience differing uh, of how they dealt with their experience right yes. like in different Very ways so. Yeah. so like in some ways they they needed each other because they had this shared experience and other yeah. ways they couldn't they couldn't have other relations yeah. could can you just kind of yeah, I, that's hit.
2: actually one of the sort of sadder parts in the story and actually for, for me it was how i learned as a writer as a person what ptsd is or what it, what it must be like for a soldier coming out from war so i think that the the group of these nine women had this harrowing experience they were but they held together they were tight friends they were it was one for all you know they were going to leave anyone behind it was just sort of these amazing moments together and then suddenly liberation comes. they finally they finally find the American troops. They're going to go home. They finally get home, and um, first of all, they get home to Paris. Paris has already been liberated for a year earlier, so nobody really wants to see uh, people coming home from the concentration camps skinny and certainly mm-hmm. not women like that. So immediately they're told to shut up about it and get on with their lives and don't dwell in the past. And this isn't you know. This is bad news, and you know we've we've moved on. Like that's that was last Mm. year's news. Like this year, you know, and they some of them uh, were able to do that, and some of them not so well, and and it really affected how their 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 families, their husbands, if they married or not, and and definitely their children. That sort of transgenerational trauma. A few of them stayed close, like people like Nicole. She stayed working with these survivor networks, and I think that helped her. And a few of them, like my Tante Hélène, just didn't talk to anyone. Like just, Mm. that was it. Went on, went back to Germany as an engineer, You know, went back to her life. And I think, and she married badly. Her first marriage um, was a disaster. uh, Several of them had sort of disastrous first marriages because they kind of, you know, just like trying to like, okay, I'm happy now. We're gonna make this, you know, and Mm. then everything kind of, you know, and then of course some of them found out that their husbands who had also been deported had died. Some of them, reunited with their profoundly traumatized husbands. And that also led to, you know, when you have two traumatized uh, survivors of concentration camps trying to raise a family, it can be disastrous for the children because mm. the parents didn't speak of it. The children could sense some great sadness, but had no idea what it was, what, what, had, what was wrong with mom and dad, you know, and that's not spoken of. You can't, there's a kind of mm. understanding of this huge taboo subject. And um, you know Zaza's family was; she had four children, and three of them um,
1: committed suicide,
2: mm, oh my or some form of that. Some, you know, some of the, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: basically <laughs> suffering. I, I believe is can be genetically passed on. Uh, yes. That you know, literally, without without even having to live around the person, it's actually encoded uh, onto yeah. our DNA. Yeah, mm.
2: I, I think it's really profound. It was really profound when I found that out, and um, and just. Also, you know, another one of the women, Zinka, she had, she gave birth in prison before she was deported and the baby was taken away and she was reunited with her daughter after the war, but she had, then had tuberculosis and she also couldn't talk about it and never talked about it with her daughter, so her, and then didn't live that much longer. So her daughter had this, this sense of her mother as just having abandoned her, you know, she didn't know. What her, what her mother had done and gone through and how much she had, she had actually mattered to her mother, you know, because mm-hmm. those things had been left unspoken all these years. So that was really moving for me. I, I found her daughter and we, we, I was able to show her all this, all these accounts where her mother spoke about her, her daughter and how much you know she wanted to find her, you know. It, it was, you could see that there's the, the suffering that's encoded and then there's the suffering that comes from the unspoken. know because kids sense it but they don't know it you know they sense it somehow and they must and they feel it but they can't if they don't know what and elaine for example she talked to me i'm a distant relative and she didn't talk to her own daughter so her own daughter learned about her mother from her telling me the story
0: wow that's That's incredible so you've actually you've done quite a bit of good in just trying to dig up this story i mean really you know you've you've, you've you've affected people's lives in a very positive way um and hopefully you know possibly being able to exercise some of their demons uh, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the process it was,
2: it was lovely meeting the families that was kind of i was shy about contacting them and sometimes scared that they would think like who is this american with her accent calling us up you know like ah. but they were so nice to every single person i talked to was completely mm-hmm. interested and interesting and helpful and and I've stayed close
1: to many other I, I uh, the, I, the of the families. I feel there's an element of serendipity here where you had to come along at a particular time to be able to do this story. It couldn't have happened yeah. years before. Oh. Tragically, when they were still alive, perhaps that, that that just couldn't have been done. They wouldn't have been able to speak. So, you know, and these other, sort of, they weren't relaying what happened to them to their direct family members. That's where it required somebody like you to come in, related yes. but not related. So it couldn't have worked any other way. It's one of those unique coming together of yeah. lots of different parts That's and right. pieces. Uh, yeah, that, to make that connection.
2: Yeah, I think that it's a, this is a common theme I've seen in, in a bunch of of, of these uh, kind of stories. Is that the the survivors, often when they're women, don't talk about it until they reach around 60, 80, You know, they get older, they're getting near death, and are nearer to death, and they want to. They suddenly sort of feel a need to speak, often to to, to honor the people that did die. Not so much honor themselves, but they they realize that this history is going to be effaced. And they speak to somebody who is not an immediate family member because they're still trying to protect their children. They don't want to put this burden on their kids or their immediate family. They, they, yeah. For them, that was the reason they didn't speak of it.
0: Speaking, speaking of honouring there, the, uh, the, it's only very recently in the last number of years that the French state actually has passed on even posthumous honours to, to some of these women. Is that yes. right?
2: Uh, it's just, a, it's a scandal to me. I, I still get mad about it. So <laughs> that's my, because um, after the war, Charles, Charles de Gaulle, he named, I think it's like 1026 or 46 compagnons de la libération. These are the leaders of the resistance. Six of them, he said, were women, and four at that point were already dead, which completely ignored, you know, for example, Marie-Madeleine Forcade, who led the, the largest resistance network in France, you know. He just he just really pushed the women aside and said, um let the men take the honor they have been so badly humiliated so if if you give the women should be content because they got the vote they got the vote in 1944 so that what more should they need you know like so it's really only now it's really only in the last uh i would say 10 years that the french have started to to recognize all these women that are so important in the resistance and um, but I just yeah, but there's still times when I'll go to these uh, exhibitions or something and there'll be almost no mention of women and it just mm. makes
1: me curious. Why is that? Why is that in, in your opinion? Is it because of the society <sighs> think, in France? Is it, you know,
2: you know I think I, I don't I feel like I'm going to say something terrible, but I think <laughs> that that, uh, that there is a sense because the French were, you know, defeated so quickly, you know, occupied. So there's a there was a kind of national shame. And you know, many people collaborated with with, uh, with the Third Reich. Uh, it's, it was much more complicated. You know, it's, people joined the resistance in the last month of the war. You know, like there's a, yeah. <laughs> and so so there's a lot of kind of shame and silence even around that. Like whether you were in the resistance, what did you do during that? It, you know, for the Germans, it was much more clear cut. Oh, we were bad. Now we need we need to come to terms with what we did. But for the <laughs> French, they try to hold on to this sort of the myth that shows de Gaulle, that, that the whole all of France was united and fighting against the Germans, and and when in fact they weren't, and and then there was this kind of shameful period right after the war when they you know where they were shaving women's heads on, hair, um, yeah, because they supposedly collaborated, and then letting go all the black market collaborators that were men completely who were you know and people like. Um, Henri Bosquet, the friend of Mitterrand, who led the Valdiv uh, deportation of the Jews—you know, those people just continued to be in French politics for up until until Chirac. You know, like so. Um, I think there's just this kind of like they, they haven't had a reckoning with the truth, and yeah, part yeah. of that reckoning would be acknowledging the role that women played. Wh- you know, after the soldiers, the men failed. You know, mm. I mean, that's that's really kind of like. Bastros, you know, but that's
1: I think part of the reason. It's very you've very well put it to explain that it is quite more nuanced and complicated. Uh, in, I've never thought of that before, actually, because the Germans, you know, they you know just come back from Hamburg, and that's why I find these places fascinating, and I'm always curious about how German people relate to to the war. One very quick example, I won't go off topic too long, but I went to this converted flak tower in in Hamburg built to protect the city now they've converted because the Germans are very clever they convert into you know this place where you can go bouldering we can <laughs> go climb up the walls on the inside you know and I went in and I wasn't interested in bouldering I was interested in the fact that it was a flak tower and there was a young guy and they're all enthusiastic and they're all you know oh this is the bouldering welcome to the bouldering do you need shoes and I was going no was this was this a flak tower and you yeah. could almost see their faces just go yes it was in this second we're almost disappointed that yeah, <laughs> they're not you know they were just like oh here we go again another wandering uh yeah history and. nerd wants to find out more about you know the dreadful you know endurance yeah. that that hamburg went through and not go bouldering so you know yeah. as, as, as a german person I'm just curious on your own personal and you, you've got a really complicated <laughs> family background to try and yeah all the parts but it, like what is the sense in germany today yeah,
2: i i, I don't know because I don't I don't I don't live there and I and and um but I'm always interested and I I think I'm always interested in in fact the whole reason this book started for me was in 2016 with the election of Trump and then in 2017 right at the beginning in January I don't know if you remember as an American I remember there was this march in Charlottesville North Carolina of these Nazis yeah you know and that was kind of so shocking to me that I thought uh you know I want to write about this idea of memorials and how you memorialize because there's so many memorials that don't exist in America. Yeah, I had lived, I'd lived in Savannah, Georgia, which was the town where there was the largest single slave auction ever, and the, the, the African Americans in Savannah remember it to this day orally. They call it the Weeping Time. But when I was living there, there was no memorial to that. But there was the largest Confederate memorial, this gigantic phallic thing. It's huge. So I was going to write about that, and then I thought, well, I should write. To, I should go to Germany and follow the trail, and I could write about these. I'd never been to a concentration camp, and, and so in my head, it was an essay, you know. And it was an essay about how do you memorialize things? How do you remember things? Of course, once I went to Germany and started on this journey of learning about these women, I just it was like, that whole thing, I just, you know, oh, that, that's, I can't, I, just, I have so much more to say about this, not that, but I'm still really interested in this question. And I think the Germans have done a lot of work, but it's, you know, it's hard because it's a constantly moving, it's a delicate mm-hmm. and constantly moving balance and you know, you, you you know Auschwitz has been somewhat commodified, and people get angry about you know people taking selfies at the the, the, the memorial in the center of Berlin, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. You know, and it yeah. it, it was yeah. you know so how people how and the bouldering place at the flag tower. You know, like how you know what's the right balance between getting on with our lives and and really you know having all these sort of sacred spaces and and also recognizing what happened and making sure it doesn't happen again, you know. this. But the French are so far behind on that. I mean, they no. have not even, you know, they're just taking the first steps towards that, towards no. even acknowledging, I think, who, who, you know, Mitterrand, nobody would apologize for the deportation of the Jews, you know. I mean, France emptied out its Jews. They were more enthusiastic about that than the Germans needed them to be. You know they were doing it faster than they could handle, so right. uh, you know. So, and so there's all that
1: going on as well. The anti anti semitic yes, thing. That's very
2: anti semitic stuff, and people, you know, it's it still happening. Yeah, it's still really part of the It's still a big question that's not been. Yeah,
0: so it's. Un- and un- so following on from that, um, I know it's not okay necessarily history. But the place and role of women in French society today. So, you know, nineteen forty-four is quite late. You know, we're yes. talking about having a vote, you know. Really late. Um, really late. Yeah. And 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 has it is it still falling behind the rest of Europe or or the Western world say?
2: I don't I don't think I don't think so. I, I think it's you know, every culture is different. I, I thought I found that incredibly shocking by the way when I was doing my research that's the women those women were all in the resistance before they had the right to vote they were the basically the legal right of children when they were in the resistance you know so that just was just blew me away when i found that out because obviously um i think ireland the women had to vote sooner i think yeah. i mean mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but um i i feel like that, that that uh each culture has a different way of looking at feminism and it and it is still in france kind of radical to say i'm a feminist i think um -hmm. you know there's something a little bit there's it's but but um no it's interesting because because you know countries like in a way in a certain way i feel like ireland it has kind of leapfrogged ahead in some in some of the ways oh you're
0: right
1: yeah it it has. it has for sure yeah it took um, took us it took us a while but yeah, we got yeah. there in leaps and bounds. Suddenly, you just like
2: burst out. You know? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. it
1: took everything. Everything happened all at once, Derek. Right? I mean, we didn't. Well, like- yeah, and, and mm-hmm. I think I think we're also married
0: to very strong women as well who uh, don't <laughs> mind uh, having a voice. That's for sure, but uh, all, all, all in the good way. Actually, just want to mention that uh, my wife Yvonne um, read your book, oh, and now like really trying to get her interested in history. You know, she she definitely has no interest in history. Uh-huh. She's real interest from reading a book. You know, she was asking me questions about the wider story and all that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. you yes. had a really, really good impact. And and she loves the pace of your storytelling as well. Thank you. Um, well, so, tell yeah, thank you. I'm I will. I, will. It. <laughs> I have it,
2: it, a lot of women like the book. It's 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 a, yeah. it's a feminist. It's a definitely female. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm it's, not, good. it's I'm, a short story.
1: I'm, I'm gonna get it from my wife Liz now after after yeah. that recommendation. She's <laughs> strong-willed no woman as it is so I don't know what I'm letting myself in for but like you know the, the same thing just to what Derek's saying you know it's it's just so gratifying you see like we have this come, come up to the podcast quite a lot where we almost feel like you know we're picking ourselves up too much but like defenders of history because it kind of starting you know people it, it just you know it, it's going off the radar somewhat I, you know I think in some English schools it's even taken off the curriculum you know so th- this is why these stories are so, so important and it's gratifying then when you, when, when you come across a story like that, like Derek's in case of Derek's wife, that they then ask him questions about the wider, the stuff that we've been talking about for the last few years, you know? Yeah, no,
2: um, I, 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 that's one of the reasons I was, um, as you probably noticed reading the book, um, I did do a thing that's kind of in a pure historian way one wouldn't do. Like I, I imagined conversations or imagined dialogue, Mm. I usually usually was something they would I knew in it from a, an account that they said we talked about this so I knew they talked about that then I would imagine what it would be like when they talked about that, and the reason I did that it speaks to this whole question about history and remembering history is that these women were kind of marginalized in the in the in the historical archive and in the historical record, and so if I just stuck to the record there would almost be nothing it's like this very threadbare you know, and I mm-hmm. really wanted to not I really wanted their their story to be alive and to bring it to people so that people could enter to, into their story and imagine and imagine themselves in that story and also to see the parallels with, with some of the things that are going on now. You know, it's this history is not in the dark, deep, dark past. It has a kind of resonance with some of the issues that we see in Europe and in America, definitely in America. So I, that was part of what I, 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 I mean, I love history. I'm a kind of a history nerd. but. I also just love these, the pure story of it, you know, the narrative of it, the quality mm.
1: of uh, and it, it, that's the history. only it's the only way of getting history,
2: history out, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. That's you have to do that.
1: You yeah. have to do that. You have to like as I often kind of describe as as the dusty books on the shelves, you know, only only people like ourselves are going to read that stuff, you know. Right. Um it's really getting out to the wider audience and that's the challenge for writers like yourself to do, which you've you've more than accomplished, I think, in this work. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: I, yeah. I, 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 loved, I love doing it. Yeah, the, the story itself is great. You know, what I mean, I had good raw material. <laughs> the yeah, those yeah. women are pretty extraordinary. So it was that was that was uh...
1: Uh, absolutely. And and just before we wrap up, I mean, it's a very salient point as well about the the fact that you know so many themes um, are so relevant to today. Mm-hmm. So much so we could keep coming across that there, don't we, when we talk about yeah. historical subjects. And another thing that fascinates me and why I just. Being in Hamburg is that this didn't happen a million years ago. This, no. is, this is this happened in history terms yesterday. The marks are Absolutely. still there, the scars are still there, and in some cases, sadly, not too many, but the people are still there. This is astonishing. There are still
2: some people. Yeah. I met some survivors from Ravensburg. I met a few women wow. who are still alive wow. Who wow. Were in that camp. And yeah, no, I mean it, what what really struck me when I was doing the research it was when I was talking to the family members of them a lot of the children were they, the phrase came up and up again that they were they were they were in in 68 they were revolutionaries in 68 and i was like huh so 68 1968 is exactly a generation later and those children then had, with that dna revolutionary yeah. resistance in them became the next sort of iteration of of you know of how do we change the world for the for better in a way you know and and who's, you know, like you can kind of see how this, it's each generation has to kind of remind the world, you know, of human rights yeah. and dignity yeah. and what's important and solidarity and all of these, you know, yeah. stand up against the sort of fascistic tendencies. <laughs> exactly.
0: And and you mentioned at the start actually then, that you're you're not a historian, so I, I think you could class yourself as a historian now, <laughs> <laughs> um, or a hip historian, and I I, yeah, or a hip historian. And I think you mentioned that you were shy about making certain calls. I can't imagine you're shy anymore. Anyhow, would, would you, was, I suppose to would, would you do this? Would you embark on something like like this again? You know, oh, absolutely. For, you would. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm actually good, working good. on another
2: book now. I ah, right. Yeah. No, I'm I'm completely hooked
0: you're caught <laughs> yeah caught by the bug brilliant love it love it yeah. <laughs> well thanks yeah. so much Gwen it's been it's been fantastic talking to you. Um, thank you thank you for writing the book and sharing the story with uh with the world so uh, we'll keep plugging it uh, from our end and uh we'll pass it around all the strong women of Ireland so you'll have an audience there yeah.
1: <laughs> a big audience <laughs> thank you so much thank you it was great right, take care you. okay Good night. Great. bye-bye thanks Gwen uh,
0: well, listen, if we can get this story out to uh, our spouses and, and beyond, we might <laughs> actually be able to take a few more trips to some oh, of our yeah. oh, uh, favourite destinations. Yeah, you had good, good an ulterior work. motive. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, Yeah, fantastic story. And, yeah. you know, glad she wrote it because it's, it's one you could easily just give up on. Oh, God, the time has passed. I left it too yeah. late. Um, but no, she embarked on that detective work um. It's paid
1: off and paid off, and that—that's yeah, the great. Yeah. As she was saying, like cheering out loud with her dog looking at her. That's the kind of the gratification, the feeling of of you know, God, you know, you're really doing something good here, and it's working out for you because you're doing something good. You know, you're getting yeah. rewarded if you like. Yeah. Uh, I had not like I'd never I think you've mentioned
0: it there never really thought of the complexities of being mm. French yeah. during the Second World War. That's huge, um, or even more so the fact you know the complexities of being German then fighting for the French Resistance and then living in france i mean that again you know there's a whole pile of stuff going oh, on there, there's a
1: lot of there's a lot yet. of there's a lot going on one story at a time as we do here on the hip historians but Derek, That's it. i really That's enjoyed it. that great stuff yeah. this evening so yeah folks as you know numbers are growing we're doing well but we need the support and share us out on twitter check us out You'll, you will you will find us good old google search will we'll turn up That's google it. us yeah thanks folks all right
0: thanks folks take care good night now thanks there Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller. New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, color schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie.